Welcome to SHIFT, a college admissions ACT and SAT podcast for a changing world. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable ACT course that includes everything you need to ace your ACT. A full textbook, tons of ACT questions backed by our memory-enhancing algorithm, videos on key topics, a built-in study planner, and full-length practice exams. You can get a free trial at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast will get you 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. Today, we've got Shane Bybee from Bybee College Prep back with us on the show. Shane, really excited to have you back. And if you could just introduce yourself to the people who haven't heard you before, that'd be great. Thanks for having me back, Tyler. Appreciate it. Um, I, I, am a, I have a test prep company based in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We do in-person uh, mostly uh, prep for the SAT, ACT, and we help students with their college applications. Uh, we, work with about, we worked with about 400 students last year. Uh, we have two locations in the DFW area and um, uh, spend a lot of time looking at these tests and looking at college admissions and what's going on in that world. Yeah, fantastic. So, yeah, let's talk about today's topic, which is something that I'm really curious about, right? Um, this idea of kind of unhooked versus hooked students. Uh, and so first, let's maybe like define what is what is unhooked and hooked mean. Um, and then we can talk about kind of like what what that is actually going to do for you or not in the, so the college admissions <laughs> process. So the idea of a hooked or unhooked student came from, and you know, it's like everything in admissions, right? It starts 10 years out and then morphs and, and becomes something different as you go through. Uh, it's when admissions officers started talking about how they were looking for hooks. They would read applications looking for hooks. So that turned into uh, independent educational consultants who would um, uh, help their students, their clients, uh, develop hooks. What, what what would help help hook the admissions officer's attention as they read your application? That was the idea. Um, and and so the hooks came along. It it's changed quite a bit. Um, you know, it used to be sometimes they talk about really in the essays how do you hook? It's it's the same thing. Your you know middle school right English teacher taught you. You know, you need a hook to get the reader's attention. Same thing here. Uh, when you have college admissions officers that are having to read, you know, University of Texas had had sixty thousand applicants last year. Uh, they admitted about nineteen thousand, twenty thousand people. So how do you take that pull uh, of sixty thousand and, and and narrow it down? Even even if you, if you look at the really selective schools, the Ivy Plus schools, and um, you you talk about those schools that have all sub 5% acceptance rates usually, right? What does that look like when you have right. a school that has a 5% acceptance rate and needs to go through 50,000 applications? How do they distill that? And so the hooks, in broad terms nowadays, hooks have kind of come into be three pulls. So when a uh, an admissions office is sitting down to look through applications. Uh, they're looking at applications really in, in three different pools, broadly, very generally speaking. And so that first pool would be institutional needs. Um, and this is your athletes. Uh, this is some legacy ad admissions students. Uh, I'm in the middle of reading a, a study um, from Harvard uh, about the effect of legacy admissions on um, uh, hmm. it, 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 freshman classes, but it's your athletes. Because one of the things the study revealed, and I'm only a few pages into the study so far, but a legacy candidate is about 50% more likely to be admitted. Excuse me, that's not, it was 46% edge. 
they are five times more likely to be admitted than your average applicant, right? So if you have a, a legacy applicant that's five times more likely to be admitted, now if you have a 5% admissions rate, they have a 25% admissions rate. Um, so you have athletes, legacies. You have this, this developmental is something we found out from the Supreme Court case uh, that Harvard has their Z list that they keep. That is the list of candidates that um, whose families are likely to make large donations to the university. Um, so there's that. And then um, and then you have institutional needs, the, the beyond just the athletes, the marching band, the orchestra, the theater, the the newspaper. What are the institutional needs going to be that they have? And so when you're talking about a school that has a, an incoming freshman class of maybe 2000 students, uh, the institutional needs portion, that hook is going to make up 25 to 30 percent of uh, an incoming class. So that's that's that hook. So if you're obviously if you're an athlete, it's a huge advantage because the coach can ask the university to pre-read your application and the coach will know exactly what you need to have, what score do you need, what GPA do you need in order to be able to be admitted. Um, big advantage, not the same advantage you're going to have. It's, it's not going to be what you get if you're uh, if you're in, in, you know, applying to be in the theater department or the marching band. It's not the same, the debate team. Right. So that's institution leads, around 30% of the overall uh, uh, pull, 25 to 30%. Then you have the diversity initiatives that a university has, and, and large among that are traditionally underrepresented minorities, Black, Hispanic, and Native American populations. Um, and typically, from an applicant poll, traditionally speaking, um, uh, the uh, underrepresented minority applicants will make up somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of that applicant pool as well. So if you're Hispanic, you're Black, Native American, that's a hook. That's going to give you. That's going to mm. going to put you in a different competitive uh, analysis or competitive pool, so to speak. Especially in a lot of ways, if you're a high achieving student in those areas, because the university is very motivated to get students who are high achieving, achieving, who are not going to demand a lot of university resources. They'll be able to matriculate on their mm -hmm. own. On that, and then the 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 dirty kind of secret, the thing that's not really talked about much in the in the these initiatives is international students. Uh, I am in the middle of looking at the class of 27 profiles, the class of 25, 26, and 27 profiles that around 20 or so top universities have put out over the last you know the last three years. Consistently, international students will make up. 12 to 15 percent of an incoming freshman class and so the, the 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 that's another hook right if you're an international student then it's a different different application it's like, it's, like a, it's like a different sort of you're in like a different category yes. that, that you're competing against different people with exactly you're not competing against you know the the average suburban applicant from an affluent area uh you're it's a different different applicant pool and i've got some data some numbers on that that i can share too so we've got institutional mm -hmm. needs 25 to 30 percent we've got diversity initiatives um, which are complicated now because of the Supreme Court decision, but the diversity initiatives mm -hmm. that will could be anywhere, 
you know, underrepresented could be 25 to 30%, international 12 to 15%. So if you put all that together, roughly 40%. So an, an incoming applicant pool, 70% of that applicant pool are these two hooks, right? And then you have your unhooked students. Your unhooked students will make up the other 30%-ish of an applicant pool. And that's really what where most kids are going to fall. Um, it gets super mathy after that. And, and the, the, the uh, audio podcast, I've actually sat down. I have a presentation that I use just to depress the crap out of parents that um, shows them exactly what those numbers mean. If you apply those numbers to an actual applicant pool, what does that do to your numbers, your chances if you're an unhooked student? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think having done the definitions now, I am curious about the numbers and the math, right? I mean, I think that it's it's important to kind of get like the context here for kind of what's going on. And I think it's also important to like set that the context here for the audience that like this is just sort of inside baseball and how admissions, you know, is actually kind of put together by the people in these in these universities. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not it's not meant to, you know, we're we're not here to like kind of cast judgment on what they're doing so much as like report back on kind of how it's all working. Yeah. And well, in the reality, it's really when you start looking at the numbers, you're going to see a surprise. And when we walk through this in a second. Uh, you know, the the fun thing for pundits to do is probably to talk about how, and, and it's really easy for parents to be like, well, yeah, if, if we were Hispanic, if we were black, that's not the that's not the reality. Uh, that's not the group that has the huge advantage in the application process. It's that that institutional needs group. If you provide right. a need that, that that university has, and that's that's where we can get into the numbers. Um, I'll try mm-hmm. not to not to drown people in the overall numbers, and and it may be a little repetitive uh, as I do it because because you have to keep the numbers in context because uh, they get a little mm-hmm. little wonky. But let's take if you have a selective university, I, I, I'll use I'll talk mm-hmm. about Harvard for a second, and then I'll quit talking about Harvard. Harvard admits <laughs> somewhere around 2,200 students because they know that over 80% of the students they admit are going to enroll. They have an incredibly high yield rate. That yield of the percentage of students they admit, it's 80 to 85% consistently every year. Makes sense. Harvard's the brand, right? If you offer me a free, if you offer my wife a free coach bag, she's very likely to take the free coach bag. That's very, that's very accurate. So if you if we use that, let's say we have a selective university that is going to accept around 2,500 students. It just makes the the, the um, math very simple, and they keep a five percent acceptance rate. So if you have if the university knows they're going to accept 2,500 students at a five percent acceptance rate, that gives them an applicant pool of about 50,000 students. Now, yes, I'm doing that math backwards because they don't control the number of applicants. But in order for us to get an idea of what of the numbers that an applicant pool would, would look like, that's what we're talking about. Harvard sees around 50,000 students' applications a year. Uh, most of your Ivy schools are going to see 35 to 40,000 applications. So, um, yeah. so that's, that's, that's what we're looking at. So if you have this applicant pool of 50,000 total applicants, and, um, and we know that 
30% of a freshman class, 30% of the 2,500 students they accept are going to be um, uh, um, that ALDC group, that institutional needs group, right? That's, a, that's 750 of their 2,500 seats. So already right. before they so ever that go. takes up a big chunk. It's a huge <laughs> chunk, right? And like I said, athletes get pre-screened. Before that athlete has ever applied, when I work with that student athletes who are trying to get into a, a very selective school, the coach has told them, I need your SAT or you need your SAT score to be here. You need your ACT score to be here. This is the floor. So you have to figure athletes are getting accepted at a, at a much higher rate than the average mm-hmm. applicant is. Um, if they were getting accepted at a 50% rate, right, which is 10 times higher than the average acceptance rate at this university, those applicants are getting accepted at a 50% rate. That is, that's 1,500 of the 20, of the 50,000 applicants total. So if, if, if we know it's 70, 750 seats and they're accepted at a 50% rate, then there were 1,500 applicants for those 750 seats, right? That seems to be, we don't have, we don't have any hard data. We're just being hypothetical here, but that would be how many applicants would be applying to the school every year and out of an institutional needs kind of hook and what they have. So international students, International students will be about 12 to 15 percent of an enrolled class. And this is what's difficult to know because the colleges are really good about telling us how many students applied and how many students they accepted. And then later on, we get the information of how many students, what percentage of the students they accepted actually enrolled. Um, When you actually start breaking down the demographic makeup of that accepted portion, they're not, there's not a lot of data on that. You can get data on the percentages that were applied. You can get data on the percentages that enrolled, but you don't typically get data on that uh, accepted group. But we know that an applicant, that if, if they are, if 12%, if the low end of an incoming class is international students, that's 300 seats of that 2,500. Right. That's 300 seats. And if we know that it's 10 to 20 percent of an applicant pool, which is what it typically is, then that's about seven. If if it's 15 percent of the applicant pool, then that is 7,500 applicants. So you have 7,500 applicants applying for 300 spots. That's a four percent acceptance rate. Right. (laughs) Right. So the international students. So international students are slightly less are admitted slightly less frequently than the average student. It's still that institutional needs student that has a 10 times advantage on the application. What about underrepresented minorities? They're going to make up about 30% of an applicant pool, and the university is going to try to kind of put them into about 30% of the seats. Typically, when you add up uh, looking at those those class profiles, when you add up Black, Hispanic, and, and Native American, it's somewhere between 20 and 30%, kind of leaning higher toward the 30% group. So if uh, the interruption minority group is 30% of an applicant pool and they mm-hmm. get 30% of the seats, they're getting the same acceptance rate as the average student. Right. It's not that group. Now, if you don't fall into that group, 
And if you did, if you added up everything we've talked about so far, that's been 24,000. We've, we've looked at 24,000 of the applicants. Roughly 24,000 of an applicant pool will have some kind of a hook. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, that means there's about 26,000 unhooked applicants left. Those 26,000. Right. And unhooked, how many spots do they have left? <laughs> 450. They have 450 spots left. So oh, okay, let's do the math. 40, 450, 20. Yeah, that's uh, that's a one a one point seven percent acceptance rate. One point seven percent acceptance rate. So if you're an unhooked applicant, then and then you are slightly more, slightly more. Let's make it positive. You have slightly more than one third of the chance that the average applicant has that the that the overall school application is. And then you're gonna hear stuff people are going to talk about early applications early action and early decision and how you're more frequently how how the acceptance rates are higher in the early action early decisions but what they don't talk about is they are higher but most of those early action early decisions are in that institutional needs group your athletes your legacies they are applying early action and early decision and they are getting accepted out of that group so right. it's even I haven't done the numbers on it, but I would I would make a bet right now that what we see as the admission rate disadvantage for an unhooked applicant is even bigger if you're looking at the early applications. Yeah, and I think this is all so like I mean this is I guess how you say bad news, well, <laughs> right? If you're sort of applying, it is. if you're applying and you're not a Harvard legacy person or, yeah. or whatever. Um, but I'm, I guess what are sort of the things that people should take away from this? Right. It's kind of the, it, yeah. So here's something, here's something fun that I did uh, for uh, in, my, in my presentation. Just before we get into that, it's kind of interesting to say, okay, we know you've got a, if you're not a hook student applying to a school that has about a 25% acceptance rate, you got about a 2% chance of getting accepted. So I asked ChatGPT, I said, what are, what are things that have about a 2% chance of happening? Here's what it gave me. You have about a 2% chance of, of drawing a specific card from a deck, a deck of cards. That's about what you're looking at. A 2% chance mm-hmm. of encountering a shark in the ocean. Uh, a 2% chance of, of finding a pearl in an oyster. And about a two percent chance of being left-handed. Um, so yeah, that was you know the 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 key to it. Now the, the question is, what do you do? Because it is, I, I did this presentation for a PTA group um, about two weeks ago, and and I could see on the faces. And I followed up with the PTA president later. I was like, all right, was that as depressing as I kind of felt like it was? And, and her comment was, it was a lot of freshman parents, and they were pretty overwhelmed. Um, there's a lot of things that applicants should do. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a group, and one mom asked me about, you know, in Texas, A&M and, and UT, those are the two flagship universities, and everybody wants to go to the school of business at those two schools. And I, I, the mom said, what's the magic thing they need to do? And I explained that if I knew the magic thing they needed to do, my rates would be a lot higher. Because and I wouldn't be talking about it. I'd be like, oh, well, come see me. We'll talk about it. Um, and no one knows. No one knows what the magic thing is. The key thing that an average ad, that, that the applicant can do one. Right. Is if, if you are I mean, we're seeing a huge growth in sports like rowing. Um, and it's not just the Lori Lachlan, Olivia Jade fake rowing things that happened four or five years ago. 
Um, I've had a lot of applicants because because crew is a really new sport in our area. Uh, we have seen mm-hmm. a couple of crew teams pop up, and I've had two or three applicants go to really good schools uh, because they got on the they got on the rowing team. Um, so that's that's mm-hmm. one thing. If, if you can find, you know, is it time to take up fencing? You can find your way into that ten yeah. X admission you know, group. Yeah, right? if you can find that group, because that, that is the group you don't control, right? It's, the the underrepresented minority, you don't control that. Um, you don't control whether or not you're an international student, right? I guess you could, you know, give up your U.S. citizenship and go somewhere else, but you can't do that. I wouldn't recommend it. No, that's um, not that's not really going to work anyway. No. They want you to have international experiences. Yes. So the, all of that's no good. Um, what you need to do, really, the key to it, and this is the thing parents have to come away with: you have to evaluate that college list. What I explained to the mom who was asking me if I knew about the the secret formula to getting into Macombs at UT. I said, look, it's not about that. Really, in my opinion, if your student is a 1320 SAT score, right? That's a top 10% SAT score. Well, if you just if you go to McCombs and you get into the business school at McCombs, you are probably you might not be in the 25th percentile at McCombs. The average SAT score at University of Texas, I want to say it's 1360 now, something like that. So you might not be in the in the 25th percentile. And then the business school is going to be even higher. What you would be mm-hmm. better off to do is to take that 1320 and go to Texas Tech. In Lubbock, Texas, out it's still a public university. It costs about the same. But with your 1320, they're going to knock – I looked at it just the other day. I want to say they're going to knock $9,000 a year off your tuition if you have – uh, as long as you have a 3.5 GPA. And everybody has a 3.5 mm-hmm. GPA. So they're going to do that. And, and it's going to cost you significantly less, and you're going to be in the honors college at Texas Tech, whereas you're going to be mm-hmm. just an average student at the University of Texas. Where are you going to have more opportunities? I get it. There's pride involved. There are network effects involved, right, that they want, they want their students to be at UT because that's where – the that's where the governor's kid goes or the the lieutenant governor's kids goes. Oh, they go to AM. Um but that's you know that's the idea that you're gonna be there in the seat of, of power here in the state of Texas. So I can get that, but really it's about matching, looking at your students' resume honestly, doing an honest assessment. The problem for students is they know of the schools they've heard of. They know of the schools that were in their right. March Madness bracket last year. They know of the schools that are, are where college game day is doing the broadcast, you know. So uh, mm-hmm. CU Boulder seems really popular all of a sudden. TCU got really popular last year because of the national championship. They might be less popular now that CU Boulder's come to town and beat them. But that's, you know, they really are. Um, well, CU Boulder, I'm sure, is like super fucking popular now, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, ten years, seven or eight years ago, they were real popular because they were ahead on some uh, some legalization uh, legislation. Uh, a lot of my students were looking forward to that that I was working with uh, for for that opportunity in, in Boulder. But um, nowadays, it is it's it's the the Deion Sanders has brought a revitalization. People are excited about the football program. They I think they're, are they three and zero now? Yeah, they are. They beat Colorado State this weekend, so they're three and zero. They won one game last year, I think. So big time. But that's the deal. They 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 know that the schools they know they they don't know about necessarily a Texas Tech or a 
uh, University of Houston. Uh, there's some really great, whether it's public or private universities, where here's here's a good number. So so I, I can use UT because I kind of know that UT and A and M both. Their business honors programs at both of those schools. At UT last uh, two years ago, the average SAT score for the business honors program at UT Austin was a 1510. That is Stanford level average. Um, the average yeah. level. <laughs> That's kind of wild, man. Yeah. The, for the business honors program at A&M was 1480. That was their average SAT score. So, you know, you're looking at, if you think about that, if, if the average for the business honors for the honors program is one or two orders of magnitude higher than the school average. Then if you look at a Texas tech where you have a 13 and 1160 and, and, and as the average SAT score, but a student goes, goes there with a 1320, they're going to be able to be in the honors college. They're going to have more opportunity through the honors college. They'll have smaller classes. They'll have a better registration op, uh, ex, experience because you can register for your classes sooner. Um, you have um, there's just all kinds of perks that come with being in that honors program. And there are businesses that will come to do job fairs or recruiting events that will recruit. I've talked to recruiters at top institutions, top consulting institutions who have told me when we go to UT, we tell UT ahead of time, we only want to talk to the honor students. We, will, we do not want to do anything with just because that's that's the, the group they want to, that they know that will be able to work, to do the work they're going to ask them to do. That, that's the group they want to recruit. Same thing. The, the same thing is going to hold true at Texas Tech. The same thing is going to hold true at any institution you go to. So is the student better off post-graduation to be looking at that opportunity? What kind of opportunities they get? So that's. If, if it can be in the honors program, then then that really is my focus for the student. It's yes, there's bragging rights. There's there's things mom and dad want to be able to talk about how they're going to UT or the AM or UCLA or Berkeley or wherever. But that may or may not be the, the best thing for them. And that really is right. the, the solution to it. Well, and I think that that's such a I think that that's such a good um I think that's such a good way to like look at it, right? I mean, essentially, everyone wants to go to the big brand name schools, and that's part of the reason why it's so hard to get into the big brand name schools. And also, the big brand name schools are not going to give you things to encourage you to go there because you'll go there anyway, mm-hmm. right? Versus, I think that there are lots of great institutions that are maybe not in that list of recognizable names where, you know, they're you can get a lot more out of them. I mean, it's kind of like, for lack of a better word, like if you're trying to ask the popular girl to the prom, so is everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, and so it's a little bit, it's a little bit easier to, or it's, it's an important strategy to consider. I think it's the right way to put it right. Where it's like, you could actually benefit from, you know, for lack of maybe a better way of putting this, like being a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Exactly. And especially because it's not actually that different. Like, I think that the quality of education, the difference in quality of education is not as big as the difference in brand recognition, let's yeah. say, for a lot of these, for a lot of these programs. That's definitely going to be it. And, and there's, there's, uh, there's plenty of research out there that says, that shows that if you graduate from, Certain schools, there are certain care. There's network effects that are there for you. That's undeniable. But if you're really looking at 10 years post-graduation, 
um, where do you have the best opportunity? The, the network effects die off after that. Uh, it's really about what you can do. And so if you can get, if you're the average student coming out of, I mean, dude, I, I didn't even talk about this. When we were, I, I just two days ago uh, saw that Harvard um, had its largest ever academic probation class, the most students ever put on academic probation. Uh, the, the, the Harvard Crimson article came out two days ago that said that, that I'm adjusting my slide deck with. Um, but can you imagine being one of the 120 students at Harvard who was academic probation? And great that you're going to graduate with Harvard. They, they actually ended up kicking out 40-something students. Um, and that's, that's, mm. a, that's, that's a 1%. It's not devastating. But, you know, um, if you're not that, that – if you're – if you are in that top half, if you are in that honors college, you are able to connect with professors at a way that helps your career. That's the network effect you have to worry about. That's the network effect. I have a client right now who is determined she wants to do fi uh, international finance for a business, and she's got, got her Dartmouth and her Brown applications in. Um, but I'm, I keep telling her she just got accepted to A&M, and I'm pretty sure she's going to get accepted to SMU. And I keep telling her, A&M and SMU, for what, SMU in particular, for what you tell, you say you want to do, SMU is the absolute best fit for you. It's better than Brown. It's better than Dartmouth for her because of what she's going to be able to do. She can compete. She can get into the honors program at the business, business honors program. And the thing we don't know at all of these schools, man, we're going way over time on this. I'm sorry about this, but every college has programs that no one knows about. Uh, that, 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 you know, you can go look through the literature that what they're what they're advertising, but there are programs within that business school. There are programs within that political science department that you don't know about until you're on campus and you'll have access to them if you're one of the best students that's in that program. You won't have access to them if you're not. So if you're if you're thinking, oh, I got lucky to get into to Brown. You know, I'm, I'm Malcolm Gladwell and his, his book, David and Goliath, did a lot of there's there's been some debates on some of his data sometimes. But one of the data points mm -hmm. he had in there was students who were in the middle third, uh, bottom third at Brown did about as well as students who were in the middle third at Michigan in a study that that they did over a long, long period of time. And so really, if you can be in the top third, uh, top half of the students at whatever school you're in. That's going to give you the post-graduation opportunities. That's what you should be looking for, not just where can I get the best T-shirt? Who's going to, you know, who's going to be the most impressive when that adult asks me where I'm going to college next year? It's so much more than that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's just a, a lot of opportunity out there that doesn't exist in the, you know, top ten or top twenty schools that you've heard of, and I also think that it's important to have the context that, you know, the actual acceptance rate and the, you know, you said a 2% acceptance rate is like, you know, the likelihood of, of seeing a shark in the ocean. Um, you know, the actual acceptance rate for people that are not coming in legacy, not coming in with crew or not coming in with, you know, a, a, a background that the school is prioritizing um, is a lot lower at, at most of these colleges. And, you know, that 2% acceptance rate doesn't mean that it's a lottery ticket where you have a 2% chance of winning, right? They're picking the best 2% of the people. Mm -hmm. So it just, it, it helps you be a little bit more realistic about 
you know, what actually is worth your time applying to. And there are plenty of great schools out there that are not nearly as challenging that'll give you a great education. Mm-hmm. That absolutely are. And that's the thing I think about the education. As long as it's an accredited university, uh, the, the accreditation process is such that they have to definitely uh, meet certain standards. So they've met those standards. As long as they're doing that, you're going to get a good education. You're going to have opportunities. You know, the latest U.S. News and World Report, they started finally incorporating um, uh, uh, outcomes into the app. Into I haven't broken down exactly how they're doing it now, but it may become more reliable because now they're looking at salary outcomes post-graduation as a factor in their, their rating. And there's some big shakeups where you have, I want to say NYU ended up like 90th in the new thing because uh, is what this is a Wall Street Journal uh, ranking that, that came mm-hmm. out a few weeks ago and NYU ended up being like the 90th on the list because of what it actually ended up doing when it came to um, uh, economic opportunities post graduation. I got to dive more into that still too. There's lots of things in my reading list right now. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. Well, anything else you want to say on this topic as we wrap up about unhooked versus hooked students? It's the, the data seems bleak, but really it's not. It's it's the other great advantage of making sure you're a top half, top quarter student is you're going to make college less expensive. Nothing will help you out post graduation more than having as little debt as possible once you graduate. And so, really, sit down, honestly assess your academic resume, understand that everybody has a 3.5 or better right now who's applying to college, that having that 3.7 doesn't make you stand out. So what are the things academically you can measure to help you see how you're going to stack up against the other students that you're going to be in class with? And then find a school where you can be an exceptional student rather than an average student to give yourself better opportunities post-graduation. This has been Shift, a college admissions podcast for a changing world. Hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Shane Bybee from Bybee College Prep. And you can get a free trial of Achievable's ACT course by going to achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout.